I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Gene, a podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Hello, it's me, Effie, your host, and today is kind of cool. I have my very first returning guest, Daniel DeFabio, co-founder of Disorder, the Rare Disease Film Festival. I'm really sorry it's not with both of them. So, Bo, hey man, that's my bad on slacking about getting a message out to you before recording. So, Daniel had written a blog post recently about the connection the masses now had to the rare disease community surrounding the quarantine. A lot of families have dealt with a lot of different aspects of sheltering in, and it wasn't as super unfamiliar as it may have been for others. I know for me personally, it was something I was definitely thinking about, which is why I reached out to him and said, we should talk about this and have an episode on it, because it had been on my mind for several weeks since the stay-at-home mandate. I honestly didn't feel that different. I mean, that not just because... We've had to stay home a lot because of what seems like Ford's respiratory infections, but it also veered into kind of being used to not being able to do whatever I wanted to do when I wanted to do it, which I think is every parent after they have a kid, yes, but it was having a kid with so much extra. The meds, the food pump, the food, the syringes, the sunblock, the glasses, the AFOs, the special shoes, physically getting Ford ready packed and out the door. It's no small feat, pun intended. Putting on AFOs and shoes can sometimes take me 20 minutes if Ford is fighting me, or if his legs and his ankles are super stiff that day. After I do that and we go to an appointment, then what? Go have fun? That takes even more planning. Did I bring enough food? Did I bring his afternoon meds? One of them has to stay cold, so if I didn't also pack my cooler bag, forget about it. No, so I go home. I'm not making a stop at a restaurant or a park for five more reasons. And then it's the isolation. I personally feel that's a part of kind of also being used to it. I still don't feel super good when I hang out with other people's kids. Their kid doesn't want to just sit on the blanket where Ford is lying down. They want to play on the playground, make stuff out of Play-Doh, draw pictures, race on a scooter. I could name a million things. And then I feel like I'm on the blanket answering questions about Ford instead of talking about my favorite Netflix show I'm binging. (laughs) It can make me feel like I regret all of the work that it took to get out the door to go somewhere to feel even more isolated and exposed and drained. And it's not like I don't miss and love my friendships and their amazing kiddos with an incredible ache. It's a very real concern that I'm not doing enough in helping Ford meet new friends. It's easier mentally and physically to just 
skip a lot of things. It's just the way that it is right now. And I hope that this is something that too shall pass. I know I'm rambling on, but these are some very real points of isolation I've had for almost exactly four years now. So quarantining wasn't and still isn't 100% shocking and unrelatable. I can only imagine that those in our community with even more substantial challenges, those with oxygen tanks, the severely immunocompromised, must feel some of these same things. Anyways, let's get on with it, shall we? Definitely go check out Daniel's blog at rarediseasefilmfestival.com slash blog. He put it so much more beautifully and eloquently than I have. Here's my conversation with Daniel DeFabio. Hello, Daniel. How are you? Good, Effie. How are you? I'm doing well. You're also my very first returning guest, so thank you. I really appreciate it. I wish Bo was here with us. My bad, Bo. Well, I'm flattered to be your repeat, your first repeat. Well, you wrote a blog post the other day, and it really resonated with me because it had been something that had been going around in my head for a few weeks, and I had talked to a couple other people about. So yeah, I kind of wanted to talk about that post that you had made a few weeks ago. The one that says we're all rare disease families now. Correct. What sparked that idea to write that post you know, um, it was the early days of the shutdown time <laughs> way back then. And uh, a friend of mine who does not have a rare disease connection that I know of, but she just posted, you know, how she was struggling. She was having a hard time with it. She didn't know if she could, you know, get through the day, get through the next day. And I just commented something like, you got this baby steps. There's no, no need to win ribbons. You just need to take breaths and you get through today and then you worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. I said something like that. And another friend of mine, Ellen, who I quote in the article or in the blog post, she commented back on that, like, this guy knows what he's talking about. And I thought, hmm, do I have anything special that I know that people need to hear? Is, is there something in the rare disease experience that has prepared me for this? And then I realized, well, yeah, this is all new territory for everybody, but it's a little less new for anybody who's faced fatal illness, chronic illness, rare disease, something where that specter has been hanging over your head for a while instead of just since like February or whenever we started to worry about coronavirus. So I think rare disease families in some ways have adjusted their mental space to this reality in advance, you know? Yeah, I feel like for the last almost four years, I've consciously been working on managing my expectations. And that was really difficult to learn how to do at first. But once I kind of wrapped my mind around it in the way of not necessarily being disappointed because my expectations weren't being met in this particular way, but kind of flipping it and realizing how big the little things are day to day and how I can make that more my goal. Yeah. Does that make any sense? It, it absolutely does. <laughs> um, I have another piece. You, you've probably read that one too, about how having a dying child changed all my expectations. And, you know, it's, you don't want your expectations changed, but it's kind of necessary once you adjust your expectations you can 
cope a lot better. You can, you know, I'm not, um, I'm not hoping Lucas gets into a good college. You know, that's not the path we're on anymore. And certainly before he was born, that was in our heads. You know, that's kind of where you, you think, you know, what, what is success for my child going to be? And now success for our child, for Lucas is, is so different. You know, it's having a day with laughs and smiles. And that seems like such a low bar. And in the piece, uh, I, I say, you know, if, if I tell you that you're lowering your expectations and you're expecting less happiness, that sounds pretty grim, but it's, it's a very different mentality. And it's like, um, before I had a special needs child, when I'd hear people talk about the special Olympics, like when my kid runs a hundred feet, it's like when you run 26 miles and I never got it. I thought, really, is it, is it the same? Is it the same? <laughs> and now I get it. Like my kid picks up a pencil that is that's the day we, we pop champagne around here, you know? And uh, I never, I, I don't know if you can understand it till you're in it, but it changes everything. Yeah, I think there's definitely an extra layer there of maybe the people who are super close to you who can dig in a little deeper. But yeah, I, I really don't know if it's something you can completely understand and feel unless you're living in it. Yeah, the expectations and the little things and stuff. When Lucas, up until age three, three is when he started a, a school program. I think you call it kindering or something near you. And for us, it was at the Center for Disabilities. They had a preschool program that he was a part of. So prior to three, my mom was watching him during the day. And on that drive, after dropping him off, I'd see all the other kids getting on their school buses. I still feel it. It's such a sadness for me at that time to think my kid will never stand out there waiting for the school bus. That's just not going to happen. And turns out I was wrong. He does ride the school bus now. He, he doesn't stand out there waiting. He sits in his wheelchair waiting. But it was so painful for me then. And it was an adjustment to, to let go of that expectation. And then I kind of got the thing I wanted anyway. It was just a different version of it. One of the greatest moments I've had was early in, you know, school started in September, started riding the bus in September, and then maybe a few weeks later, I hear a kid on the bus, because you kind of wonder when your kids can't communicate much, you know, they don't tell you how their day was and things like that. But Lucas gets on the bus and I hear one of the other, the bus is all special needs kids. I hear one of the other kids on the bus yelling, Lukey's here, Lukey's here, he brought popcorn. No, he didn't bring popcorn. And that didn't matter in the least. It was just that there was a kid out there that cared that Lucas was getting on the bus. And it just broke my heart wide open. I was so, it's one of my greatest days. So it's weird that my one of my worst days or worst type of days and one of my best days are mirror images to each other, you know? Mm, yeah, I definitely feel that bus moment. That kind of reminds me of uh, when your friend Bo was talking about the friendship necklace that Tess got. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> and how they felt so like she wasn't alone at school. Yeah, yeah. it is so tough. I, I pay attention to all those stories of Bo's with the difficulties of engaging and keeping engagement with sort of social peers, because when your kids don't communicate much, or, or in the normal ways, you can't sort of check that out. You can't say, you know, who's your best friend? 
who did you sit with at lunch today or anything like that that everybody takes for granted, you know? And we did find out that Lucas has this great friend at school, Amelia. And we're like, well, what does that mean that she's his friend? She just, you know, she visits him. I guess that's what it means. She visits him. Well, no, she would like, you know, make these huge efforts to visit him in his classroom. They have um, Scotty Bucks. Their school mascot is the Scotty. And if you have good behavior or do good deeds or stuff, you can earn a Scotty Buck and you can redeem it for certain things. And one of the things you can redeem it which I think is just a testament to how great his school is. Uh, you can redeem it for the chance to visit the special needs classroom. And so that's what Amelia does. As soon as she can, she she saves up her Scotty bucks so she can visit Lucas's classroom. And she says that he's her best friend and stuff. And she says the reason she likes him is because I wish this wasn't at a video instead of just audio because you could see the pantomime I'm about to do. But she says he has a smile that goes this wide and she stretches her, she stretches her lips out into her cheeks. And that's what we feel. Luffy has a smile like that, you know? But for this, I mean, she was probably five when she said it, and uh, they're still friends now. But for her to have, I don't know, figured him out so much and connected with him so much is is just fantastic for us. Amelia, what a special little girl. And what a very unique and cool program that the school has set up. Yeah, I really couldn't be more pleased. I mean, we... You know, we chose a place to live and we knew it had a good school district and but we didn't have kids when we moved here and we intended to. So school district mattered to us, but we had no idea that it would be on our radar that we needed a good special needs program at the school. And it turns out they have a really good one here. In fact, neighboring school districts sometimes send their special needs kids here, even though they have to pay tuition for our public school because they're not in the district. So I think we really got lucky with that. I know Bo has talked about, you know, you don't want your child mascotted. You don't want to just be this sort of symbol of look at the disabled kid. And I've been amazed at our school district how genuinely and thoroughly integrated they are to the mainstream. I showed up for a gym class and I assumed Lucas wouldn't be doing much gym class and they were playing musical chairs. And I'm like, well, that's ridiculous. He's in a wheelchair. You know, there's no musical chairs he can play. And no, they found a way. You know, they they put a traffic cone and you took away the traffic cone and you're out, you know, so even the kids in the wheelchairs could play it. And they had a soccer game going. I'm like, well, that's not going to work. His feet don't really reach the floor. Well, they had an oversized soccer ball for the kids in the wheelchairs. It's just amazing to me. And because of those efforts, the kids there don't. I mean, maybe it's generational changes, too. You know, back when I was a kid, maybe we were we were less. um aware and less sensitive and kind but these kids in his school they're not like the special kid in the sense of the weird or the scary or the odd kid they're the special kid in the sense of it's a rare opportunity to see them you know it's it's almost like a little bit like lucas is kind of a celebrity because everybody knows him in the school and again because he can't tell us oh that's my friend Billy or something, we walk around our little small town and people come up to us and the kids, they'll talk to Lucas, but then they'll realize they better talk to the parents too. And they look and like, I know <laughs> Lucas from school. I'm his friend. Wow. Like, oh. wow. Daniel, that is amazing. Yeah. And that gives so many of us parents hope because it's, it's really scary, you know, 
putting your kid in this environment and wondering if people are nice to them and wondering, you know, all of those things. And it is amazing how resourceful and how creative teachers and paras and therapists are in making things adapt to our kids and making them work. I know sometimes I'll be like, oh, well, Ford can't do that. And then someone's like, oh, yeah, it's just like this. And I'm like, oh, duh. Mm -hmm. Why didn't I think of that? And thank you yeah. for thinking outside the box, because there is almost everything they can be a part of, especially in school. I'm going to go back to expectations, how we were talking about that. You were talking about how managing your expectations in the matter of expecting less and lowering them a little bit, I guess, and not in a scary way. Someone else wrote something last week, Rose Reef, the counselor I had on the show a few weeks ago. She said something really similar to you of ways to kind of get through this time and manage it is to lower the bar and lower it so low that maybe you have to dig a hole and bury the bar in the hole and forget where you put it. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's that's pretty insightful. It's It sounds depressing at first, but I get why it's a useful technique. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds depressing, but it is. It's a useful technique. And I think that it's so cool that you became sort of a little bit of a lifeline in a way for other people who maybe haven't been exposed to so much uncertainty, if you will. And I think the way that you can show up is just how you're doing it. And, you know, kind of sharing it in the blog this way is really a beautiful transformation of a all of it. Yeah, I think, you know, we've all by now gotten so used to talking about flattening the curve. And, and of course, what it's supposed to mean is that flattening the number of cases, so maybe the same number of cases, but over a longer period of time. But I think in the sort of the rare disease mindset experience, we have another curve that we've flattened. And that's sort of the, the fear, right? The, the fear of a disease, the fear of an a of a death, a, a possible pending looming death. And, you know, we, again, didn't just start facing that in February of 2020. You know, we had it from our diagnosis day. So in my case, that's 10 years of maybe the same amount of fear, the same deadly, horrible, tragic fear, but I've spread it out over 10 years. And, and some people are sort of maybe grappling with it for the first time in two months. And so if you curve that, you plot that curve, yeah, that's a steep one for them. And it's, it's, you can see what's going on in the, in the country and in the world. And some people are reacting out of fear more than others. And it's understandable. And, you know, it's, you can't, you can't necessarily solve it by telling people try to do it differently, but you know, if you do show like um, you were talking about, you know, burying the bar or whatever kind of coping techniques we can come up with uh, in the article, I, I referred to the Kubler grief cycle, stages of grief. Mm. And I think, yes. you know, a lot of people are probably stuck in anger or denial. But, you know, maybe we come out of this with some of the more, you know, acceptance, some of the more positive attributes. In fact, um, I think Kubler himself just amended instead of the five phases of grief, he tried to add a sixth, which is something like being proactive or giving back. It's uh, about meaning. Yes, it's about finding right, the meaning. Right, finding yeah. meaning, right, which I think 
is no surprise that there's a lot of rare disease advocates that do that, right? You, <laughs> yeah. You're up against terrible odds and terrible prognosis, and you know maybe you can't even save your own child, right? So what are you doing instead? Well, maybe you're trying to save the other children that have the same diagnosis, you know? So I think that's where, where we go, a lot of us go to in the rare space to find our meaning, right? We, we become champions for our disease and, and we derive meaning from that. And, and it's, you know, it's a great legacy to our loved one to, if that's the good we can get out of the situation. Totally. I think it's actually a good time for that part to come out. I think it did. I think it's officially published. But I did hear him say he had a question and someone was like, how can you possibly even say that I should find meaning in this death of whomever? And they asked him, how did you find meaning in the death of your son? And he said, I didn't. I found the meaning in the part where he was alive. And I found that making it about that has helped me find the meaning because I did get to know him and I got to meet him. And some people don't get to do that for very long, if at all. Yeah. I remember people asking me in February, around February, every client that would come in and they would ask me if I was worried about Ford and what I was doing. And I would respond with not more than how I feel every other day. Like I, I didn't really like I didn't feel shook. And I still haven't really felt shook. Obviously, we did take bigger precautions with isolating him more yeah. because everyone is. But it wasn't kind of like this big looming life experience that was happening to me the same way it was happening to my friends. Yeah, I think um, in our case, you know, anybody who's locked down, you know, probably one of the things they would complain about and we would complain about is, oh, we can't go anywhere. We can't travel. We'd, we'd hope to travel. But in our normal life, Lucas can't get on planes. So we've had 10 years or eight years of adapting to what kind of travel can we do within a car drive, right? That's We had this limited radius. If you can't load the van up with Lucas and travel there, <laughs> and, and handle however many hours of driving, then you can't go. And I have a disastrously horrible story of our van ride to Disney World one year. And um, <laughs> it just went as bad as it could go. And uh, so we'd already adjusted to a limited range of travel. And now because of COVID-19, that range is limited to like our house and the grocery store, you know, yeah. and our get fresh air moments. We used to try to walk different parks and their trails and stuff. And that's um, been getting harder. We find these places to be more crowded. Last weekend, we tried to climb a mountain and found it so crowded that we couldn't keep any distance, um, even though we routinely get off the trail by like six feet or more and let people pass us either coming up or coming down. It was just too many people. We couldn't do it. So we gave up. And, we came, and then one of the few, and I'm about to give away my secret, but one of our few uh, spots near our house that we feel we can get out and go for a walk and not encounter people is a graveyard. <laughs> so there's uh that's like just begging for some morbid thoughts there, I guess. But no, graveyards are so beautiful. I mean, and 
weirdly parents who are listening have this weird morbid sense of humor so yep. i think it fits yeah so <laughs> it's about a block from our house it's, it works out really well we usually don't take lucas because the roads are gravel and it's not good for the wheelchair but we take our other son who's nine and apparently the uh the environment and the tone of a graveyard had had a, an effect because the other day while walking through there he started to ask what plans and what style and what manner of funeral we would have for lucas I'm like, oh no so come on man it's a little too much to be asking a nine-year-old but you know he's got to process it in his way and we had the conversation and he actually i think felt better for being able to contribute to the discussion yeah. you know and maybe he wants to have a memorial tree grow for his brother and things like that you know wow that is so heartbreaking and also so beautiful that a kid who's that young has this concept already kind of going through his mind and really yeah it's and i think you know you can question the wisdom of his parents to sort of yeah to sort of trigger that conversation but on the other hand if we didn't trigger the conversation even though it was unintentional is it just going to percolate in around in his subconscious and move around in some unhealthy ways so <laughs> yes yeah so now it's out there yeah and i mean if i think if anyone deserves to know about death and things like that it's the other kid in the house who's living the same life too yeah yeah, maybe take him to the park this week. <laughs> exactly. maybe, yeah. maybe go walk along a lake or something. Yep. We might have to make a change or two. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's so funny. If you all aren't following Daniel yet, you have to follow him on Facebook. He made this amazing little sitcom bit. I don't know what you call it about uh, working from home. And they kind of had it a parody in, of The Office, right? I yeah, would say. Yep. Yeah, oh we, my god it's hilarious yeah we called it the home office and that actually was supposed to be my wife had sort of noble ambition she's like you know why don't you make a documentary about these times of living under lockdown because of <laughs> pandemic and it was supposed to be sort of a serious you know child's documentary and then of course since we're all goofballs and wise guys we realized we kept throwing in the jokes and like oh you know what this is <laughs> this is like the office and <laughs> that is so funny it was so good so go and watch it when you're done i think i shared it on my facebook page and it's also on yours on the disorder rare disease yeah I'm sorry to be missing your festival, but I'm looking forward to it being rescheduled. Yeah, I know. We, it would have been next week. Well, as we record this, it would have been next week that we would have been in New York with you and all these great people. And oh, well, and that, yeah, now to think about, you know, May 18th in New York City is for an event of people packed into theaters that have someone in their life with a rare disease sounds about the worst event you could create <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's like some weird movie that we've all seen in fact do you know um that movie outbreak with dustin hoffman yes when the outbreak comes to america it's in a san francisco movie theater or oh, bay, bay area maybe not san francisco but northern california uh, that was weird i rewatched that movie and i was kind of chilled because you know our last festival was last fall in san francisco not that we that's spread creepy. the coronavirus there <laughs> we did no, not to our knowledge happen. yeah <laughs> so daniel what are some things that have changed with everyone being in quarantine do you think whether it's like socially or 
whatever it is, what are some things that have changed that you hope stick around after everyone's safe and life goes back to its new normal? You know, obviously people, a lot of people have more time on their hands and maybe they're bored, but they're also contemplative, right? And they're maybe reflecting and reevaluating. And at the same time, we're seeing, I think stress shows weaknesses and we're seeing institutional weaknesses and, and government weaknesses and maybe even some people's sort of attitudinal weaknesses, right? So a lot of what's not working, it's being laid a little bit more bare and we're able to see like, why is it that an essential worker isn't necessarily a well-paid worker, right? Why, how, how did we get to that point? And now if, if it's so important that I get my groceries from this person who's risking their life, you know, can we figure out a way to pay those people more? So I think some of those things might possibly, if we don't snap back to the old normal really fast, we might have some time to look at things a little differently and question how different they should be, right? And and then, you know, to get even more political, but, you know, if you get um, who's more vulnerable, oh, is it people of color? Is it poor people? Is it sick people? You know, obviously sick people resonates with me. There's, there's a meme going around like, yeah, we might all be in the same storm, but we're not all in the same boat. And so some people obviously have advantages in whatever, you know, way you want to define advantages. But I think we've got to look at, do we really value all lives equally? And if we don't, if they're not all equal, that's the problem for me of like, well, there's, you know, you've heard people saying, we've got to just be okay with some people dying because we've got to get back to work and everybody's got to work. And yes, we do need to work, of course. But once you say you're okay with some people dying, what do you mean by that? If it's random people will die, you know, and it's unavoidable, that doesn't sound like a, a judgment that's being made. But once you're aware of who's more vulnerable than others, now it sort of is a judgment that you're making. You're saying, oh, the elderly can die and that doesn't matter. Or the pre-existing conditions people, they can die and that doesn't matter. And if you go that way, now, you know, founding principles of society, like all men are created equal, they're not really true anymore, right? You've, you've realized there's a value judgment that's been made. So I hope we're rejecting that. I hope we're, we're coming back to the all lives are worth saving and and maybe that can lead us to things like a better healthcare system where it doesn't have to be the medicine you can afford is the medicine you get but it's more like we take care of everybody yeah i love that you said that i feel like in the beginning there was just post after post after post of it's fine. It's just the medically complex population and the elderly who are affected. So we're fine. You know, there was such a disconnect between humans being the same. And it kind of reminds me of how annoying it is when people talk about natural selection and they make it just such a simple thought and that it's okay for different populations or types of people to just get cut out because... Only the strong survive. Yeah. My friend Patty Welton from Beyond the Diagnosis, who's been involved with our film festival, she has a new short film that's uh, the name of it is um, Your Only is My Everything. Because the people that say it's only the, the people with pre-existing conditions that need to worry. Well, that's a pretty important only in my house, and it's a pretty important only in yours and in Patty's house. And there's another... Um, 
I think that's working as a hashtag these days. Your only is my everything. But there's another hashtag, another friend of mine, Deborah Green, started, which is my mask is for you. And I think that's a very non-judgmental way of reminding people, like, even if you feel invulnerable or not at risk, the mask isn't just about saving your own life. It's, yeah. you know, it's about protecting the other people. Yeah, I think technically the mask is really just for other people with how it works, but I don't yeah, know. No, I've, I've seen that same thing. <laughs> the, the, the effectiveness of like, if I, Daniel, had COVID-19 and wore a mask, I'm protecting you much more than if you wore a mask and I didn't. Right. Is it weird that I like to see how vulnerable people have presented themselves and kind of opened up in the last couple months. I feel like a lot of people have kind of really been forced to kind of dig deep a little bit. I've seen a lot of beautiful empathy and kind of understanding happening in a lot of the people I share a social media with. And I kind of feel like for the first time in a while, I'm floating along with a lot of other people who I felt maybe was floating next to me swimming before. Yeah, I think that for me, a, a great, um, you know, it's weird to talk about a benefit of being in the rare disease community. It's a club nobody wants to be a part of. But once you're in it, you're in touch with these people that are doing amazing things and they have amazing attitudes and they're inspiring people. And I think, you know, tragedy can bring out the best in people. And now we're having a national and a global tragedy. And in a lot of cases, it's bringing out the best in people. And you're finding this commonality, this very existential issue that you have in common. You know, basically, we're all feared for our lives to some extent or, or feared for some lo loved one's life. And I think a lot of compassion and generosity can come out of that. Yeah. Well, Daniel, do you have anything that you would like to leave since you are pretty wise in this department and you do have a lot of experience in spreading insight? I don't know. I think, um, you know, being okay, Try well, easy, easy to say, but try to be okay with it because the worst, when it feels the worst, it usually doesn't last that long and the next day might be better. Or, you know, I think there are waves through this of really bad times and then not so bad times and then more hopeful times. And it's, it's tricky, you know, the earlier stages, whether we're talking about the earlier stages of pandemic or the earlier stages of just having been diagnosed with a rare disease, I think the closer you are to the surprising bad news day, the harder it is. And the more time you spend with it, the more you can sort of adjust and like we talked about, reset your expectations and adapt. And we don't really know what that adaptation is going to require of us, but it probably isn't life as normal. Realizing what we can let go of. Yeah. And being okay with it. Yeah. Well, it was so awesome to talk to you again. I really appreciate it. I can't wait to share our conversation. Yeah. Hopefully next time we'll get Bo on here too. That'd be great. Thanks for taking the time to talk to yeah. me again today, Daniel. Thank you. Glad to do it. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this show with your people and please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story, or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. 
Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate y'all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you. Ha 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 